Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Mr. Brad Busick. Mr. Busick is a true luminary in healthcare IT. He's been recognized as CIO of the year, is a Business Transformation 150 award winner, and a TEDx speaker with over 20 years of transformative experience. Prior to joining MultiCare in 2020, Mr. Busick served as CIO for McDonald Miller, led strategy, planning, and architecture in the office of the CIO at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and served as Chief Technology Officer of Paladin Managed Care Services. Mr. Busick, Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Alan, Dr. Liu, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you both. It is absolutely amazing having you on the show today. You've had such a diverse career across so many different industries. I kind of mentioned in the bio, but finance, aerospace, retail, philanthropic nonprofit, and now healthcare. You're the CIO at Multicare Health System, as well as a professor of business information systems at PLU. I've also heard at one point in time you wanted to be a lawyer. So I'm really curious, how did you end up in technology? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't know that any of us know what we want to be when we grow up, and I'm most certainly still in that stage of life. Honestly, I've, I've had just an incredible fortune to be able to work with not only just some outrageous colleagues doing really meaningful work at places like the Gates Foundation, but also trying to get into industry that I think needs disrupting. Healthcare most certainly being one of those. And in some cases, the bar is so low, you can walk over it. I actually think there's enough blocking and tackling that isn't being done thoughtfully in healthcare right now that I thought it would be uh, an amazing opportunity. And I think there's a curiosity that I just naturally migrate towards, sometimes blindly. I was going to uh, law school at, at Pepperdine, actually, and managed to get an internship with a company called Russell Investments right out of undergrad. And I got hooked on this thing called creating our first intranet. And I thought, oh, wow, this is actually really cool. And then I met this beautiful uh, woman who now is my wife of 24 years. I'm like, screw Pepperdine. I'm staying here in Tacoma. And um, and I have uh, ever since. And so I never left. Uh, that's awesome. So I was curious, you mentioned Russell Investments. These are some big hitting names, the Gates Foundation. How important are relationships to you inside and outside the organization? And how did a relationship lead you to multi-care? Yeah, I, I'm a little bullish on this and at the risk of it sounding, you know, even clickbaitish, I, I actually think relationships are everything. It, to me, it's the foundation. There's not an organization that I've worked at and transitioned from that I don't still keep in contact with those leaders, my previous teams. I've brought people from my former organizations into new organizations, trying to honestly kick down doors and allow them to reach their fullest potential. And if I can help participate in any of that, I, I want to. In order to be able to do that though, and, and you both know this, you actually have to have earned the right to be heard. And if I don't know what Dr. Liu's goals and aspirations are, how can I help in that journey? And so taking the time to understand what someone needs, what they want, what they're afraid of, and then diving into that with them. And that actually was certainly true in terms of my transitions to multicare. My former floor mate, Dr. Mariani, and I lived together before he was all fancy and he was a doctor. He was just Mark who lived two doors down from me at PLU. And we've been family friends for 30 years now. And he called and goes, hey, opportunities opening up at multicare. I want you to come take a look at it. And the second that I did, not only did I become enamored with the culture and the values that Multicare not only has on their website, but lives, 
I also realized there was a ton of opportunity to shake things up and, <laughs> and rain down some much needed change. And so um, over the last almost four years now, we've done that and have um, been really fortunate to not only, I think, inspire a culture and elevate the partnership between IT and the business, um, but also provide just full-blown better patient care and um, better quality. And so I'm really proud of that. I think one thing unique about your story, Brad, is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you moved to multi-care near the start of the pandemic, sometime in 2020. So, you know, some folks would have said, okay, well, maybe I'll do healthcare later after we navigate this pandemic. You kind of just took the bow by the horns and went after it. Was it that easy of a decision for you? How did you decide to do that in the heat of the pandemic? Yeah, great question. It actually happened blindly. I started on March 16th, 2020, when it wasn't even COVID at that time. Right. And, and I kid you not, someone taps me on the shoulder at New Employee Orientation and said, Hi, are you Brad Busick? And I said, yeah, great to meet you. They said, yeah, no niceties. We need you in this command center we're studying up because we, we think we have a situation. And honestly, that has been the biggest blessing for me. And I could have taken six months to onboard and meet my colleagues and learn all the things. I actually just jumped in with people trying to solve a wild problem. And I will tell you, back to Alan, your original question, this is where the relationships are formed. It's in the trenches and you get to see the best and the worst of people in those moments. And I will tell you as a partner, as a technology provider and an enabler, I wouldn't have, honestly have done it any different. We learned a ton about what is working and what's not working about our own system, but it also gave me an under the hood look at ways that we could literally optimize this, make it more efficient from virtual health all the way to, wow, why do we have seven ways to collaborate with people remotely? Let's get rid of that and just make it one. Just little blocking and tackling things that I think led to the credibility of the IT department here in Multicare. And Brett, can I ask you, like, trust is really important to get folks on the same page and aligned. And it's easier to have that trust once you've had months, if not years, to build it. When you kind of went, you know, headfirst into the water there at the start of the pandemic with folks you had never worked with before, looking back, any strategies that worked to help you build trust so quickly to get folks on board with you? Yeah, I think there were some areas that we had home runs and areas that I, I think we failed. So some of the areas that were home runs, if you do what you say you're going to do and you execute, it's the fastest way to build trust. And sometimes it's easy, like, hey, we're selling this building because no one can come in to work anyway, so let's move 4,000 people home. Okay, we got to go figure out how to do that. What's our platform for online collaboration? Are we giving stipends to move people home? Are we actually going to let them print at home with PHI? How do we do all that stuff? I think when IT commits to something and then we do it, it's a home run. Where it fails is when we say, all right, we're going to have a 20,000 person meeting on this platform and everybody dials in and it crashes because it can't handle the capacity or mute isn't enabled and everybody's got dogs barking and kids crying in the background. That stuff detracts from trust and credibility. And so, you know, fortunately, we have a really awesome mess up, fess up policy that my my colleague, June Alteris, likes to say. And we had a lot of messing up and fessing up to do. We most certainly haven't arrived. We're still on our own journey. But again, back to earning the right to be heard. I think ISNT has done that because we do what we say we're going to do. It's funny. Um, it sounds simple, but doing what you say you're going to do is one of the most hard things, I think, for lots of folks to do. But But to your point... When you've proven that you get seen as reliable by the folks you work with. So that, I think that's such a huge point. Thank you for sharing that. No, you bet. So can I actually ask you another question about people? So we're in a time where, and I think this is true, not just for clinical folks, but even in, in IT and IS, where retention of staff is 
really hard right now. I'm kind of curious, how have you been thinking about that in terms of how do you build a culture that gets folks wanting to come to multi-care, to stay at multi-care, whether it's IT or, or outside IT? Yeah, I don't know that multi-care is any different in terms of um, outcomes or results, given maybe the blessing and curse of what COVID did. The, the blessing was it allowed us to work from anywhere. The curse is now I'm not just competing with folks on the I-5 corridor here in Washington. So Amazon, Microsoft, Starbucks, Costco, no. Boeing, I'm now competing globally because all people need is an internet connection. And I will tell you one of the ways that we've thought about this work and, and we're really vocal about it. And my last LinkedIn post was hundred percent dedicated to this. I actually think our folks are intelligent enough to understand and know when a leader wants more for their team than from their team. And what I mean by that is I actually, in some cases, don't even care if that's at multi-care. There's been a, a handful of resources that I've had a chance to partner with and multi-care wasn't the best fit for them. And I'm going to be the very first person that makes the phone call or the LinkedIn introduction to go help them land that new gig. And I think people authentically can feel that if it's real. If it's not real, then it feels like what it feels like at most organizations, which is I care about my team and they know you don't. They actually just know you care about getting whatever project is done. Trying to hire a leadership team in IT that adheres to that same make and model has been one of our recipes for success. Now, that's really, really hard to do in the times of reductions in force and the financial pressures we're facing because every transition is hard. These are humans with families and mortgages and, and all of that. And so I think being empathetic, but also helping them land. And so that's one of the ways we've been doing it. Yeah, I really love that because, you know, I think when folks get hired, they get a really great hiring experience. They get sold on the new opportunity and all that. But I think to your point, Brad, how you treat people on the way out, whether it's to volunteer. Yeah. It's like, do you care about the offboarding pro the transition process? And it, actually, it's funny. I think about that also from a vendor perspective, like how do your vendors treat you if you decide they're not the right solution for you? Do they treat you with like love, respect, and care on the way out as much as they did on the way in? Or do they just give up on you? Tells you a I've lot I've seen both. I've seen both. And I will tell you the beauty of healthcare is, and I actually think it's larger than healthcare. Most CIOs that I know have really long memories. And so when a partner decides to play a short game and cut it off because you didn't renew with Salesforce and you went to Microsoft or whatever, and if that was a poor experience, well, you can look at my resume and see the different verticals I've landed in. Those companies play in all of those spaces, right? And so I think it's really important that relationships are put above profit because if the relationship's solid, the profit will come, the results will come. And sometimes I think that gets lost in the vendor relationship. And you actually, even if that vendor isn't the right solution right now, you might come back to them later, but if you treat totally. you poor, you're definitely not going I, back. I 100% won't. I absolutely won't. Makes sense. So Alan, I think we wanted to talk to Brad about culture. I did. Yeah, absolutely. So Brad, I've heard in the past, you've mentioned your thoughts around the power of a winning culture. And I, I am paraphrasing, but I, I believe part of that recipe for success for you was using love as a business strategy, being transparent with your teams and having a yes and attitude. And I'm really curious, could you just unpack that for us and maybe share how you go about inspiring a winning culture amongst your teams and even the larger organization? Yeah, absolutely. And and I am glad that you, that we're going to talk maybe both micro and macro. So I'll, I'll talk micro first, just within ISNT. I think we can control what we can control, which is how do people know that they're valued? 
how do people know that the work that they're working on is appreciated? Uh, and then how do people know that the things that they're spending literally 50, 60 hours a week on are producing better results, either by way of patient care, patient quality, community engagement, expanding access to care. All of those things are really, really important. And that's the what. The how, I think, is where people fall down. So I'll give you a real example. I could go task someone and say, hey, we're going to go build a brand new children's hospital. Go nail down that epic build. And then when it's done, everybody celebrates this beautiful new children's hospital that goes live at Multicare in a couple of years. But we hadn't taken the time to recognize and honor the team that busted their butts to get this epic build that is one of those things that is nobody ever cares about until it breaks. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people care about it. How do we make sure that that team knows that they're just as important as the architect designing the lobby, as the individual that's laying the tiles on the floor, as the electrician putting the light bulbs in the ceiling? They're part of that team. So we actually do this intentionally and thoughtfully. I have an incredible colleague named Jolene Wick. She puts out a monthly newsletter for IST, and we highlight the awesome work that's happening in partnership with the system. Why do we do this? Well, I think what gets you know measured gets managed, and I actually want to shine light on the really cool things that are happening, whether it's something provocative or something that's blocking and tackling. But I also want transparency for the rest of the system, meaning. The other 22,000 colleagues at Multicare may not have the same level of fidelity as to what's happening in IT as I do. So we just don't miss those opportunities. And that's just on the external communication. Last week, we set up a, a new series called Make Me Care About. And the first topic was Make Me Care About Microsoft Teams. Fast-paced, hard-hitting, 35-minute meeting, Bon Jovi entry music, Whitney Houston exit music. And all we were doing is highlighting the things that exist in Teams that nobody knows about. And they should because it makes them more productive, which ultimately allows us to be more effective on behalf of the way we do our work and our patients. Those are the really fun uh, opportunities, I think, where IS&T is partnering with the business to get a different outcome. That will spur other departments to go do something similar mm -hmm. or whatever their situation is, whether it's Workday or what's happening in, in HP or supply chain. We love to be able to do that. And I will tell you that IS&T has a pretty amazing culture and it is, it's a place of destination. Any sort of tips for ISIT leaders who have, to your point earlier, Brad, like lots of this has gone remote and more folks are, are at home in their office, or maybe you, you've hired folks who don't even live in the same state as you right now. How do you build a strong culture when you're just getting way less face-to-face -face time nowadays? The FaceTime is a big issue and the timing of this interview is perfect. We just had a, a whole host of colleagues here uh, in the office uh, yesterday. My leadership team as a team meets together every 90 days to go do our quarterly strategy update and refresh. And then as a larger team, all 400 plus of us, we get together every month for 45 minutes remotely to do our all hands meetings, et cetera. We're encouraging meetups, lunch and learns, et cetera. On the 13th of next month, I'm hosting our leadership team at my house for a gift exchange and folks are flying in for that. And I think it's important to get that FaceTime. I don't know that the industry, and this isn't unique to healthcare, I, th I think it's broader. I don't know that we fully understand right now the impacts of actually what being remote has done to us relationally. And I think you might be able to quantify and measure it by things like poor quality, higher turnover, more transitions between verticals, people leaving the healthcare industry all up. These are some, I mean, we're so new in this still. I mean, we're still two and a half years into this journey. I don't know that we fully understand uh, what it has meant. And so it's hard to underestimate sometimes, I think, the importance of just being able to shake someone's hand or give somebody a hug. 
I think that human touch is still something that we um, were wired for. And I continue to invest and foster in with NIT. It's what I think to your point, Brad, I think over the last couple of years, we've gotten a lot of data about the pros, I guess, of working remotely that we didn't have before. Then we started learning more about the things we missed about the in-person. Now, I think a lot of folks have realized, okay, there is some happy medium that involves both. What's yeah. the right balance for your team may vary from org to org, but there's something yeah. in the middle probably for most yeah. folks. I think there is. And I will tell you that I think some teams have more autonomy than others to make those calls about what works for them. I would say for IT, we have folks all over the world uh, at this point. And honestly, as long as it's a state that Multicare can hire from or a country that Multicare can hire from, I'm down. I don't care if you're in a mobile home or you're in an RV or you're in a cabin or you're in a penthouse. I Whatever, if you're a good cultural fit and you can get the expert, you have the expertise to get it done, we have a home for you. I mean, given that you can change your Zoom background now, you actually don't, you have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> no, you don't. I have the same exact background for mobile, tablet, yeah. and laptop. So I'm always here in the office. That's right. <laughs> in the office, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love it. So, Brad, speaking of getting things done, You've only been at Multicare for a few years now, and I could list just so many initiatives that you've taken on and achieved with your team. Uh, you really had a profound impact so far on digital transformation and a lot of newsworthy innovation. One of your recent wins was implementing this autonomous in-hospital robot to let clinicians spend more time with their patients. Yeah. What was the origin of that? Ben, I'll tell you the origin, and it's no mystery how this happened. I remember exactly where I was at when my phone rang, because this is the type of, of caller when the phone rings, you answer it. The name on my phone caller ID was Florence Chang, who is the former CIO at Multicare and now the current president at Multicare. Her granddaughter, Cameron Grace, was being born at Cedar sinai And she said, Brad, where are you? I said, oh, I'm standing here you know, in the hall. She said, a robot just came in and delivered a blanket to my granddaughter. We will have some of these. <laughs> that was it. And I said, oh, okay, cool. We're going to have some of these. So I went on to go just do some due diligence. And at that point, you know, our partners at Diligent Robotics were just an email address. Since that time, we've developed a really deep partnership where we're even doing you know, idea generation and, and co-development and piloting on capabilities that we've learned as we've we've rolled this out. In IT, you don't get to say that things are home runs very often. We picked a partner in partnership with our nursing team over in the in the Northwest area, so the Spokane area of Washington State, to pilot this and had outrageous results because of the strong nursing engagement. This wasn't an IT project. It, it was a nursing project as part of our care transformation being led by our chief nurse executive, June Alteras. And it wasn't even hard to get her on board. We just said, what do you think about this? This could take pebbles out of the shoes of our nurses who at that point in time, and even today, I mean, they're burnt out. I mean, folks are spending time on tasks that honestly we shouldn't be spending time on. And so while we started out with some blocking and tackling, we met with the nursing team and said, what don't you like about your job? I mean, if we could automate things and, and allow you to be spend more time with patients, what would that be? And we heard everything from walking to the pharmacy to getting patients' ear pods to delivering blankets, moving teleboxes, going to the lab. And so we took that insight and turned those insights into action and partnered with our, our partners at Diligent and said, this is what we'd love it to be able to, to do. We also brought some other friends to the party from pharmacy and, and lab and the supply chain team to say, what else? And the results, again, just kind of speak for, for themselves. I mean, since we've rolled this out now across multiple locations of Multicare, we've done over 26,000 deliveries. And the 
platform, Moxie, has been active over 18,000 hours. So they roll in pairs. When one dies, is about to lose its charge, it backs itself into its charging station. The new one takes its task load from the nursing team and adopts it and moves out and finishes the the tasks. And I will tell you that not only has it been a, a wild success for our care transformation initiative, the patient feedback has been incredible. It mirrors, I think, Multicare's appetite for uh, healthy innovation. The platform is cool enough that it actually is a delighter for our patients. And when a kid sees a robot and the you know its eyes turn to hearts, that's really cool. And um, we've had some really awesome experiences so far. And I think we're just getting started with it. I think we're literally just scratching the surface of what this could become for us. That's awesome. I'm curious. So you obviously have the quantitative data on deliveries done or maybe yep. steps not taken by the nursing team. What sort of feedback are you getting from the frontline staff? Yeah. So the frontline staff, depending on who you talk to, it can be wildly scary when you first see this thing open up in the elevator doors and it's standing there. <laughs> like It's like, oh my God. The nurses love it. And our providers writ large love it. They're dressing them up. We had them dressed up for Halloween. More importantly, if it wasn't doing the job that it needed to do, this would just be another thing. And right now at Multicare, it's not that. And so we're in constant communication. So we have a monthly cadence as part of the steering team for this innovation. And we're um, analyzing it because I think the learnings that come from this can honestly be applied to any innovation we're going to roll out. And uh, you know, to your point, Alan, we're just getting started with some of the cool things that we've tried. And I actually think that we've matured enough now to take the lessons from these capabilities and move them to different capabilities, even if it's serving a different patient demographic or a different provider demographic. So can I ask you, like, as like a, a leader in innovation, how do you think about going from the initial pilot to scale? Like how quickly you can turn it on across the board? Like were there certain trigger points for you in that journey with, with diligence that really yeah. worked? Yeah, I love that question because um, I actually think it takes the right dance partner on the vendor side to do this thoughtfully. You can dance by yourself and it's kind of lonely. It's a lot better when you have a partner to go do it with. And in this case, Diligent had, had been that. And so, for example, we knew that particularly in, in sites where we didn't have a tube system, this was an immediate win. But by spending time and looking at the data of where these things were traveling back and forth, we actually earn the right to have more conversations, right? Because it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to do this. It's a whole nother thing to say, hey, we heard you. These are the seven things that you didn't like. We did five of them. What else? Now that they've had a chance to experience Moxie and they said, oh, wow, did you guys realize that, you know, it could actually use its arm to go move teleboxes back and forth. And right now we spend like half of an FTE doing that. Okay. That's a really awesome idea. What else? Well, for meds to beds, it'd be amazing if it had a point of sale system that we could just swipe at the bedside so that we didn't have to go to the pharmacy at all to go pay for things. Awesome. Let's go do that. And the vendor, our partner has just been amazing. And so really, really excited about that to the extent that I'm going back to graduate school uh, again. I start in January and my capstone for this master's is actually going to be robotics and the next wave of evolution in that space. And Diligent Enough was cool enough that I just called them and said, hey, are you guys game to be my case study here? And they and they both are fully engaged and fully in. So excited to do it. That's awesome. Yeah. Great, great story. Thanks for sharing that. So you had a, another huge milestone this year. You went live with Workday as your new enterprise management platform. And uh, one of the things that, that you wrote was a key success factor being that it was a relationship project, not an IT project. And I think you mentioned earlier in this conversation about how you view these as, again, not IT projects, but you know transformation or, or clinical or business projects. Can you unpack the idea more for, for folks? Yeah, you bet. 
If you've never done an ERP implementation, these are the scariest, wildest, and typically most expensive projects that you can say yes to. And even though I was the one that, you know, four years ago brought the contract forward and, and partnered to pick the vendor, it's not an IT project to go quote unquote, put it in, right? In particularly in a cloud model where all I need is an internet connection and theoretically you're in, right? Yes, we have single sign-on and yeah, we have this appropriate security roles. Where this thing really got legs was because of three specific people. Jason Molding, who is our VP of supply chain and heads up our, our Myriad external services team. Jason Mitchell, who's our VP of finance and our CFO over in Yakima. And Laura Edwards, who's our VP in HP. The four of us would literally meet daily. We broke bread together monthly, rotating everybody's house. And we talked about all the elephants in the room. And sometimes those elephants in the room range from, hey, so-and-so isn't showing up well, we might need to make a swap, to, hey, this is a two-year project. I'm about to go on PTO. I need you to go take over this aspect of the project while I'm out. Can you do it? Those relationships truly were what drove this to be a success. Now, would Moltec here say that uh, this is the benchmark of all implementations and it was flawless? There will always be bumps in those roads. But since we've launched, by and large, most of our staff are thrilled. There's always going to be the instance where people like their old system or systems, plural. In this case, we got rid of 30 plus and moved it to one. And so we're really excited about the journey. That team is now continuing to meet as we work on Workday Phase 2, which is the next iteration of learning management systems and additional planning and forecasting capabilities. And so I'm really excited about what that looks like and honestly so grateful for specifically for those three. They're the ones that had poured blood, sweat, and tears into this to make it work. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that. Huge undertaking. Oh, thank you. So Brad, I got to ask, and I'm curious when you first implemented Workday, was this part of a larger plan from the beginning? Because I've heard in the past, you know, you've talked about this idea of having a three-year game plan uh, on, on how you block and tackle with your teams. And more of my question is about prioritizing different initiatives. So if you're thinking three years out, like how do you determine what priorities should have precedence in accordance with that overall plan that you might have? Yeah, great question. You know, I would say in IS&T, we really don't have IT projects or priorities. We have the business's direction on how we need to roll. And certainly I'm a thought partner there to help inform that. But ultimately, I serve at the pleasure of that team. And ERP was something that was really important for, for Multicare, knowing that we wanted to be able to scale. And frankly, we had maxed out. And when I say maxed out, I mean technically you couldn't add it into another table. I couldn't add another hospital without literally getting into like the, you know, SQL database of our current ERP. Like it, it just wouldn't grow. And so we said, all right, we, we got to go make a move. The ERP came as a, frankly, a necessity. We know we needed to do it. But zooming out on it, in IT, we have a, a really repeatable plan. We call it our A3s or our PDSA. And it's taken from, from Lean. It's an A3. It's strategy fits on a paper. And every 90 days, we're reviewing it. Every capability has an associated timeline, a measurement for success. And then what did we learn in the last 90 days around that capability? That could be around things like our go-to-market platform for hosting other sites Epic, all the way to, hey, we know we need to go consolidate our learning management systems. We also know that we move at the speed of business. And so sometimes business priorities change, like we're going to go acquire a hospital. Okay, well, we might need to shift resources to go support that. That means some things fall below the line. And so we use that process as a way to respond quickly to the needs of the business, but also be agile to the things that we need from an infrastructure perspective. 
to support that scale. And so I actually don't believe in five-year plans. I think if you have a five-year plan, it's probably already out of date. You could almost make the argument for three-year plans uh, as well. Our A3s go out about 18 months. And that 18 months, you'd argue, even with the emergence of things like AI, et cetera, that also could be too long. So that's why we keep the rhythm and the order and the discipline of a 90-day window to make sure that we're on top of the needs of the business. Yeah, that makes sense. But I do appreciate that idea of IT being the glue to support the business overall. And it's really Absolutely. looking at kind of overarching goals. One other topic that I wanted to bring up was your newsletter. So you have this yep. awesome newsletter called Stop Admiring the Problem, which is a fantastic name because it's so descriptive, even from the title. It's a great portal into your work and some of the amazing achievements that you've had so far and your focus just as an IT team overall. A lot of this newsletter centers around storytelling. And so I'm curious, what makes a great story in your eyes and why does storytelling matter? Yeah, thanks for that. You know, the, the newsletter simply came out of a lot of the dialogue I was having with other colleagues and leaders, not even in healthcare, just from different areas. So much of what I think we do is around storytelling. We just don't actually call it that. So if I sat down with you, you know, Saturday morning for breakfast, I'm like, man, what, how was your week? Oh, well, this happened in my family and then this happened. You're telling a story. We don't necessarily write that way, except in IT, particularly given the complexity of what we do. Storytelling, I think, is the gift to unlock and reduce the complexity. And so when it's done well, it transforms the conversation into things that people can understand. And I'm just really grateful for my time at the Gates Foundation where this was just pounded into us through Duarte or the the, the practice of storytelling. And you know, I most certainly have a ton of work to do in this space. It's one of the areas of focus for IS&T in 2023. How do we tell the story about the importance of testing down or testing out for Epic? Well, you may not even know what that is, but what if I told you that I could actually get your nurses on the floor faster? Okay, now how, how is that happening? Now you've got someone's attention and being able to stop talking in bits and bytes and more talking about the magic of what we're trying to unlock and I think that's what grabs people's attention. The other piece about that newsletter that I've just enjoyed the feedback and, and getting to honestly meet folks from around the world with it, everybody is by and large struggling with the same thing. And, and it's boiling down to, I think, important pillars for execution, specifically trust, authenticity, kindness, and then execution. It goes back to you know doing what you say you're going to do. If those elements are there and I see a documentary that my son and I are watching, like the one about the quarterbacks on Netflix, Kirk Cousin cares about his team. His team knows it and they'd run through a wall for that guy. You can take that same leadership principle and apply that to software, to, to retail, to aerospace, to whatever. And all of us know good leaders that don't have followers. And we also know great leaders whose team would run through walls because they do those exact things we just got done talking about. And I aspire to be on that end and, and want to make those appropriate investments. And I think storytelling about the awesome work that IT does is one of those ways. Yeah. And I would say, Brad, among like folks in healthcare IT and who are leaders like yourself, I feel like you're one of the few that has committed to using long form writing as a way to to engage. And I know for me, like writing, a big part of it is like, it helps me think. Like in many ways, I think by writing. So as much as I'm writing for others, I think I'm writing for myself first and foremost, sometimes even. I'm kind of curious, like when you started down this journey of, of doing a little more long form writing, was it more for yourself at first or was it for a certain audience? Like maybe it was more for your team members at first. I'm kind of curious, like where it started, how you think about the value of long form writing for yourself today. It was, it was for my team. That's exactly what it was for. At the end of a year, ISNT at Multicare put out 
a year in review. And it's a super highly polished infographic that has video embedded and it, it articulates the incredible wins over the course of the year. Because I think one thing is true. We actually aren't objective enough to see our own blind spots. We forget some of the things that happened January of this year, right? And so capturing those, bringing those forward to say, hey, by the way, do you remember when you increased onboarding capabilities of MultiCare by 80%? Oh, that's amazing. Let's capture that. Trying to capture that in long form writing became one of those ways. And, and the audience originally was for that. I'm a horrible writer and I know that about myself. And so for me to actually force myself to do it and then be subject to folks like you and Alan reading it going, dude, I get this guy's point, but he can't write. It forces me to be better. And so uh, it's been a cool refinement and a, and a personal project for me in an area that I know I need to improve on. Hey, look, you, you put in your 10,000 hours, who knows where you can take it, right? So, so 100%, 100%. I love it. So, and Brad, to be frank, that's why we do this podcast too. So, you know. <laughs> I love it. So, so, I love so it. I'm curious, you, you brought up the, the Make Me Care About series earlier in the conversation about Microsoft Teams as one of the examples, but I am curious how that series started. What was the genesis for that idea and how has it helped to secure buy-in for a multitude of initiatives at Multicare? Yeah, honestly, it came in a conversation I was having with my chief technology officer who he and I worked together at the Gates Foundation before we came. And it's very common at a place like the foundation to have a series like that. And I thought, why not healthcare? And so in partnership with our COO, Lori Wheeler, we said, let's book it. And you know, if you build it, they will come. So we put a series on the calendar, invited our leaders, one of the formats that we saw that worked really, really well during our workday rollout and our epic refuel, we did both simultaneously in 2023. And I had hair before I started both of those initiatives was forums like this, where we would open it up for 45 minutes, give a quick overview, highly engaged, high energy, but really useful information. And I said, man, that recipe works. Why wouldn't we do it for things that we know make people more productive, particularly in a time in healthcare where we're asked to do more with less. So if I can save a thousand people 10 minutes a day because they're using a new feature on, in a platform that we use today, that's exponential savings that's, and it's real. So we threw it out and uh, we didn't even announce who was hosting it, right? Like sometimes people would attend because you know they feel like oh. they have to or their bosses do. So it was myself and our CTO hosting the first one, and it was outrageous. 500 plus people attend, explosions of emojis all over it. We recorded it and, and sent it out. And we realized at that point that there's a recipe in the storytelling of one, it's 35 minutes. You're sitting, it's over lunch, so you're sitting at your computer theoretically. Two, we record it so it can actually get legs and go viral if it needs to. And three, using our technology, if people can share like, one of those snippets with their staff, we asked them in the leader notes to take it back, go share the video with their staff, use it in a staff meeting to show something that stood out to you. And so that make me care about series is going to transcend into security. How do you keep our family safe at home with the internet? I could see our HR partners using it, make me care about our new open enrollment program. How does that work? And so provocative title, we ask a question at the very end, you care now, one to five. And after the last one, we had a 4.875% of the folks cared. Uh, which was really cool. So may not always be like that, but it's a fun way to hold ourselves accountable to bring meaningful content and topics to our, our colleagues. I think one of the really smart things about doing this for Microsoft Teams is that, I mean, Teams is one of the few solutions that almost 
it's not literally everyone in, in multi-care has to use often on a daily basis. And so anything you can do to even just nudge efficiency by like 1%, like you have huge leverage because like if you have like thousands and thousands of people doing things like you know, even like 0.5% better in something like Teams, the total like improvement in output and experiential one is a massive total massive. I mean, this should probably be one on probably like Outlook or something too coming up. <laughs> well, so I asked I asked our, our team's opinion, like, so what do you want to see next? Outlook obviously was one of those. OneDrive uh, was <laughs> one of those. But features are being pushed because of cloud-based platforms at such a wild rate. By the time I record that session, that thing's out of date 30 days later. I got to go do it again. And features are always coming. And so we think we've we've struck a little bit of gold here in terms of a, having a cool way just to, again, earn credibility and reach out to our partners in a different way. Well, soon you're going to have to do one on like all the different co-pilots in, in Office Honestly, 365. Yeah. You're yeah. not lying. That is, that is on the agenda. That's amazing. Also, by the way, I think one of the cool things about this conversation is that we actually took a long time before we even started talking about tech in this episode. I think we spent the first half on leadership and culture, which is actually yeah. quite neat. <laughs> so I want to give kudos to you there, Brad. Most of us have gone right to the tech. Interesting. So a big fan of culture and leadership, which is awesome. I am. I, I appreciate that. And I, I think the, uh, the technology can honestly only flourish if the culture and the people are right. If those two ingredients are wrong, the tech is just tech. Totally. Last question that I had, Brad, you gave a fantastic TED talk a little while back on the notion that every student deserves an authentic connection with their prof. And you shared a story about a particular student that you were teaching at that time. Because yeah. I know you've mentored countless individuals and helped them find success in their careers. You've chatted about you know, even if that's not at multi-care, you'll find a, a spot for someone who you have a good relationship with. I'm curious then, what in your eyes makes a really great mentor-mentee relationship? Yeah, I think in a mentor-mentee relationship, the mentor sometimes needs to want it bad enough for both of them. And and what I mean by that is, um, and it's ironic we're talking about a, a TED Talk. I've got class tonight from 6 to 9.30 at PLU and I'm jacked because I walk out of those sessions, honestly, with more energy than I came in with. Not only does it keep me young, but the dialogue that happens in those sessions, they're real, right? And so if you zoom out and you look at just our education system today, and I can say this now as someone who's a current student going back to school, we don't do an awesome job outside of the classroom. We do a great job saying, Alan, here's your syllabus. Here's the four books you need to go spend $7,000 on. And here's one class is. But what's the so that? Alan, here's the syllabus, here's the list of books, so that when you're done with this class, we can help get you exposed in an internship at Facebook or at wherever it is. And part of me feels like education proper has just fallen on its face here. We're really, really proud of our statistics in terms of our enrollment and our, our continuance, but we don't necessarily brag about them. By the way, these go, these folks got meaningful jobs and we helped get them there. And I'm not a professor. That maybe is the blessing and curse here. But I, I most certainly am passionate about mentorship. And I think in this, finding a mentee that is hungry, sometimes you actually don't even understand the full appetite until you get time to do that thoughtfully. Unfortunately, there's more mentees than there are mentors right now. And I'd say more than ever in the 14 years I've been doing this now, there is an angst in the classroom because that classroom is about to turn into the job force. And it's a wild time where folks are remote, Anxiety is at an all-time high, and they're desperate for really, I think, intelligent folks that have high EQ and high empathy to come and start rowing in the water with them. And so I'm really passionate about that. 
the, the best way that I've seen it done is through measurement. Alan, what do you want to accomplish through our, our time together? I, if I can't help you, I'm going to bring in Josh, who might, might be better. It doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. It just means now he's my co-pilot in your journey. Their network expands. And I will tell you, I get so much joy doing this with our, some cases, students. In other cases, they're folks on my own team right now who've never set up a LinkedIn profile. I'm like, you guys, we, we can't afford to not do that. I mean, I have CIOs that I work with that don't have LinkedIn profiles. And I'm like, what are you doing? So being a coach and being a thought partner with them, there isn't a recipe per se, but sharing tips and tricks. And again, earning the right to, to be heard. The most rewarding part of this for me is not necessarily the relationship right up front. It's the note I get 10 years later that says, man, you were so right on this. Or I had no idea that that book that you recommended would change my life and here's why. Or my marriage is better because of this. Or my relationship with my kids is, that to me is, that's worth more than a paycheck. Yeah, I think sometimes folks don't realize that being able to pay it forward is actually very rewarding for for the mentors. Like you don't like you don't need them to do anything for you to be in return. It's the right. fact that you see yourself adding value to them that makes it worth doing. And then hopefully yeah. they I mean really all you want is that they pay it forward to the next mentee, I guess. It is. I will confess, I did have one mentee who is one of my favorite people on the planet named Andrea Adams, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, who got a job at Nike. My payment was she needed to get me a pair of Jordans. And so we we did it and we went to the employee store together. It was super cool. But other than that, yeah, you're totally right. Paying it forward is amazing. Uh, I need awesome. to get friends at Nike. That's what yeah. I'm <laughs> That's amazing. So Brad, let's uh, just be mindful of your time. Let's flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. Five right. rapid fire questions for you. I'm ready. First question we have, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Oof. The First 90 Days is one of my favorite books. Um, I gift it a lot because a lot of the folks in my circle are either starting new careers or transitioning into a new vertical. I also give it to my students that are graduating because they're getting jobs for the first time and I want them to show up well. This book is old, although it's been refurbished a few times, but it the, the content still lands and the cadence is still right. Second question we have, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Ooh. Warren Buffett. I've met Warren, but I actually want, I'm going to change the question. I want more time with Warren. Hey. My very first day at the Gates Foundation, new orientation, uh, this guy taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, is anyone sitting here? And it was Warren Buffett. And so he sat down at a table with like 13 of us. And I was that guy. Like I wanted to get my phone out and be like, Ugh. I didn't, but was 100% as advertised. And I'm sitting there thinking, people pay this guy like hundreds of thousands of dollars for lunch. And I'm having like a burrito at the Gates Foundation uh, with him. So I want more time because he was outrageous. Question three, a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? I think being a mind reader is the next evolution. Right. I think sometimes as a CIO, my job is to try to be a mind reader, just to really suss out what the problem we're trying to solve is. But I'd love to be able to read people's minds. Sometimes uh, that might be scary, but it'd be a cool, cool power to harness. Yeah, a follow-up that we do have, if you couldn't turn that power off, would you still want that power? No. Yeah. Uh, then I'd just go to strength. That's that's what I would do. I haven't seen strength since the '90s, so I would go. I would yeah, go back right. to strength. Oh, that's great. Question four: What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Insane. I don't know if they'll find it insane. I just think they're going to disagree with it. Hospitals are going to become less of a thing, and your home is going to become your hospital. That's this is this is where it is it is going, and we are not far away from uh, walking into a Costco. And being able to buy a Hillrom bed for your house, having drones deliver medication and medical equipment 
to your home. It'll be a commodity, just like Amazon Prime. And Multicare is launching that in Q4 of 2024. <laughs> and I actually think um, where appropriate, people won't have to come to the hospital anymore. We're going to come to them remotely. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So basically uh, disrupt yourself before you get disrupted. 100%. Yeah. Last question we have, Brad. If you could travel back in time to any event or moment, and it can't be that that lunch with uh, Warren or Buffett, but <laughs> what would, would it be and why? Uh, I will tell you, I love team wins. So um, I'll do maybe a, a, a sports one and then a non-sports one. I think uh, the Miracle on Ice would have been outrageous to be at in person just to feel the energy uh, when that happened. I watched the movie and I, I love it. Um, I think from a corporate perspective, the rhythm and order and discipline that it took to put someone on the moon in 69, I, I, I mean, that would have been outrageous to be a part of that team. But maybe the sadistic part of me would have, have loved to have been part of the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s um, because I'm a connoisseur and that would have been a fun fun thing to be a part of. That's awesome. Love it. Well, thank you, Brad. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Brad, honestly, again, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. You've sprinkled so much wisdom throughout the conversation, like Josh mentioned about leadership and culture to begin with, more so than the tech. And I love that. And it was really refreshing having you on the show today. So thanks so much. Oh, good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.